This morning, we will be reading from Genesis, and I'm going to read the first verse of chapter 10, and then we will go on to chapter 11. Chapter 10 is all genealogy, and so um, you can kind of look through that, but 10.1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, that is Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Now we will go on to chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be. Well, I think Alice was ready to read chapter 10 this morning, so if you want to hear it, I think she was ready to go see her in the gathering place afterwards. <laughs> she does such a great job reading for us. Thank you, Alice. Um, well, we are going to look today at chapters 10 and 11, and, you know, we've read some genealogy, and we're going to be reading some next week, so I thought this morning, you know, it, it is such a tough passage to exegete and even preach on, really. It's just a lot of names, and so we're, going, we're combining 10 and part of 11 today. Uh, as we uh, continue in this Genesis Foundations uh, series. Let me pray for us. Lord, open your word right now to us. Prepare our hearts to hear it. Spirit, make us come alive by the word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're going to look today at the effect of the Tower of Babel first. The scattering of humanity we're going to see in Genesis 10 before we actually look at the cause of the scattering of the people. We're seeing the effect before the cause in the Tower of Babel. Moses arranges the material thematically rather than chronologically. As you get to chapter 11, you're like, wait a minute. All the people are one, but we just read 10, and they're all over the place. He arranges it thematically rather than chronologically. Well, if you remember last week, Noah, in his post-drunken recovery, or a couple weeks ago, pronounced those oracles of blessing and curse upon his three sons, Shem, 
Ham and Japheth. Ham for exploiting his father's nakedness and shaming him. Shem and Japheth, uh, they were blessed for graciously covering their father with a blanket. Remember, mirroring God's act of covering Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve's nakedness in the garden, and our sin in Christ. We have a picture there. And we talked about Moses' intention was less to think of the curse as um, uh, and blessings on the individual, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and more to look at the people groups that would come from the one family, these three sons, remaining after the flood. And we know God's intent from the garden uh, to Noah and his sons was to fill the earth, to populate it, and to move, really, outward. Genesis 9.1 says this, And God blessed Noah and his sons, it's after the flood, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Spread out. Fill it with image bearers. And that's what we see in chapter 10. We see that an immense the table of nations that's been called. Scattered people groups that have come from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But while it was God's intention after the flood, as we saw, we see here in verse 9, that humanity would multiply and fill the earth, man had a different intention. Driven by fear and pride to do the exact opposite. To dig their heels in and to build up at Babel. The exact opposite intention. This morning we're going to look at God's gracious solution to the problem even of our own pride, as we look at the pride of Babel, and then his condescension to humanity and his scattering of humanity. We're going to take a look at that. So let's begin by looking at this table of nation, all these people groups that come from one family. We're going to start this way, calling it this, the unity of humanity from one family and one God. The unity here. Here in chapter 10, which is why we had uh, Alice read chapter 10, 1, is our next toldoth section. Remember, we've got, I think, 10 of those throughout the book of Genesis. They're the breaks, the natural breaks that Moses puts in the book of Genesis that talk about, oh, here's the next family and here's what becomes of them in the book. And chapter 10, verse 1 says that, I'll read it again. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So basically, uh, Moses is saying, here's what happened. Here is what happened to Shem, Ham, and Japheth's families. And while we said it, it's a tough passage to exegete, which means to, to get at the meaning and, and then to preach, it's masterful in how Moses arranges it, how he sets it up. We add up the nations and names and, through this table, and we get 70. 70, kind of the perfect number. There's multiples. We haven't talked about this much in this series, but there's multiples throughout Genesis, the book of Genesis, sevens and, and tens and seventies all over. Even the New Testament, Jesus sends out the 70, remember? And here it's suggesting, I think, as Moses does this, 70, this perfect number, the totality of all of the nations of the earth in this list right here for us as Moses arranges it. It's organized by the three sons that we've been hearing their names the past couple weeks. And the nations that came from them. Here we have the beginning again of all humans on the earth. And we're reminded by God that they come, we come from one family. One family. 
what a vision for humanity that has been lost today. I mean, think about that for a minute. We come from one common human family. All the people on the earth, wherever we are. I mean, with all our divisions today, I mean, think about this. I mean, we are divided and across all kinds of lines, whether it be race or politics or even religion in, in many ways. All our divisions today, it's so refreshing, I thought this week as I looked at this passage, to remember we all came from the same place. We all came from the same place. What a reminder I, I need. No matter our differences of skin, of languages, of cultures today, we are all united human beings descended from one family. I don't think that way when I look at people. And if that's the truth, we have a responsibility then to one another uh, and our common ancestry. I think we need this more than ever when it seems like, you know, you look at the world and you, you listen to the voices in the media. And, I mean, the world is so content to reduce everyone, either to their political party or their ideology or their greatest sin. We love to reduce people to like 2D cardboard cutouts, especially when we think of them as the other or an enemy. They, see, they cease to be human from the same family. Christians, we cannot, we cannot reduce humanity to a cardboard cutouts. No, we are flesh and blood uh, nations from one family. So the question is, you think, who is the other to you? We all have a person that we define as the other. They're just the other. We don't know much about them. We're, we feel distant from them. Who is that other to you, and how do you view them? That's a reminder, I think, we get from this passage how are you define that other? How do you view them and what is it that stands between you and them and your ability to see the common humanity that we have because we're all in this table of nations, really? You know, there's some helpful themes for us here, too, in chapter 10 before we get to Babel. So I want to look at a couple of them as we think about this idea of unity. Here, here's the first one I want us to see. The prospering that's taking place here under God's common grace in the world this time. We see humanity prospering here under God's common grace. Common grace is a, a term that means that, you know, special grace, revelation grace is Jesus and knowing him as Savior, but common grace is the way that God shows goodness to everyone in the world, whether you're one of his children or not. He's good to, in the world, and goodness comes to everybody. Remember, humanity had just been eliminated by, uh, in the earth with an earthwide flood. But now here in this long list of names, they're, they're growing again. They're prospering. They're spreading out under God's care. And we see, I think, and reminded in this table of nations that all of life, they all owe their life, their existence, their prosperity as we do to God and His common grace that He shows all the world. I think we see that in this table. And this is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said this. In Acts 17 sermon. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way or grope their way, your translation might say, toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. In other words, 
God is sovereign, Paul is saying, over humanity and people and where they go and where they live and where they reach out to. And so he's even sovereign over this table of nations in chapter 10, in where they go and where they spread. He's determined their boundaries, Paul says, and their periods and even their dwelling places has been ordained by God. Why? I think Paul gets to us, gets to it here. Why has God done that? So that the spread out of the nations, the multiplying of the nations would further enhance the impact when they all turn to the one true God. Do you see that? As they spread out in the earth and even got further away from each other, they still would hold to one common God, would be the hope. Under his common grace, as he directed these nations in chapter 10 and took them places. So we are united. We're united under God's common grace, his goodness to the world, but we're also hopelessly divided. Here's our second theme we get from this. We're united yet hopelessly divided by land, language, and culture. So just looking at some of the names from the list, we get the sense how this one family is now hopelessly divided by language. Just listen to a few of these names. I'm looking at verse 16. Uh, 15, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemorites, and the, the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. Let me just hear that list. You're going, you can just hear it in that. Like, these are all people groups, all dispersed. You get that the unity is not quite as united as we might think it is. They're divided. Land and language and culture and what was meant to be one people group from one family has now been divided by land, language, land, and culture. I mean, we may know we are one uh, family of humanity made by God, but you ever, have you ever traveled abroad and not known the language somewhere? Have you had that feeling? You get off the tr- I mean, you're, just look- you're looking for like a bathroom. Have you ever done that? in a foreign country, and people don't know the language, and you don't know their language. I mean, you feel hopelessly divided, don't you? There's this big barrier in front of you. You don't know what they're saying. They, they can't understand you, and you're reduced to, like, hand gestures, right? And grunts, uh, 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 you know, bathroom, you know. Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to make any gestures. Uh, <laughs> I was going to. But <laughs> we do that with toddlers, not with adults in church. But you get, you get what I'm saying, don't you? You probably had the experience like that. And most of all, our sin separates us, doesn't it? From each other and from God. Humanity is also hopelessly divided in many ways. We glean that from the table of nations. They all came from one family. There's supposed to be a unity, and yet there's not. They're separated. One line is cursed. The others are blessed. I and mean, we can get that in there as we... Remember our Noah story. And our earthly attempts at unity, they don't work out very well, do they? I mean, just ask Britain, which just completed Brexit from the EU. Union, you know? Those unions don't work out very well in our earthly attempts. The list of nations just begs the questions as we look at it. What happened? I mean, what happened here? These families and lists as they spread out. Before we get there, let's just spotlight. We've got to spotlight a couple of standouts from this chapter 10. So 
Let's spotlight a few before we go to Babel. We're going to spotlight a couple of individuals that will connect us to the rest of Genesis. So here's the first one. Nimrod. Not a very popular name, is it? When was the last time you met a child? Here's our new baby, Nimrod. I mean, it just doesn't happen. He came from the cursed line of Ham. Uh, the cursed line. Let's, let's look at his verses. We need to do that. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 10. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Keep that in mind. Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Reason between Nineveh and Kala. That's the great city. Here we see this man Nimrod. He's a little bit mysterious, but he's described as powerful and mighty and probably really aggressive by the standards of the world. And his might and skill is probably to be taken as ironic, even as it mentions, even though it says before the Lord. I think there's probably an irony there. The cities of his kingdom, Babel, Babylon, we'll talk about in a minute, and Nineveh in Assyria. I mean, these are all are going to become mighty powers that send destruction upon God's people. And here is the man Nimrod, who is the mighty man who starts, leads probably, maybe was king over. And there's a reason no one's named Nimrod. There's a reason. But we've got to keep him in mind. Let's look at a couple more. Eber and Peleg from Shem's line, the blessed line. Look at verse 24 of chapter 10 with me. 24 to 25. To Eber were born two sons. The names of, of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. What do we have going on here with these two guys, these two brothers? Well, Eber is actually understood to be, by the Jews and even, I would say, in God's word, the ancestor of the Hebrew people. You can kind of Hebrew, Eber, they're, they're kind of similar. Chapter 14 will describe uh, Abram, the Hebrew. And so from the line of Eber comes the Hebrew, God's people, and Abraham. Abraham comes from the line of Eber through Peleg who we're going to look at his line next week, who the text says was alive on the earth when it was divided, which probably is not a reference to continent splitting, probably a reference to Babel here, uh, when the nations are divided in the tab- uh, at the Tower of Babel. So we've got these very interesting family lines to keep in mind, because in a moment we're going to see Peleg is the line. If Peleg dies, we won't be here. The seed, Genesis 3, will come through this family line and through Abraham will come. That's why we're highlighting them today because they're, and they're highlighted in the text too. So how did we get here? This table of nations, all these people groups divided. We're going from the effect, the scattering, to the cause now. So let's look at it. The cause, the pride of the people who have migrated from God, the pride of the people who have migrated from God. So God has asked P 
people to spread out. We saw it, chapter 9, over all the earth and multiply in it. And what do we see? The exact opposite. We see the exact opposite here. They dig in their heels, kind of like, like Lamech did. If you remember back in Genesis, he, he, they were supposed to spread out. He said, I'm building a city. First thing I'm doing. They dig in their heels and they build a great tower and a, cid, and a city. And so we're kind of going back in time now from chapter 10 to the time when the whole earth had one language, the same words the text says in chapter 11. And this common language was, at that time, was supposed to be used to promote that unity God wanted, that even if they did spread out, they could travel to the farthest land on the earth and still speak the same language. I mean, imagine that. Imagine if you could go to Europe today, to Italy, and show up and speak the same language. Talk about the unity that would be there, the division we feel in language. This common language was supposed to promote unity and godliness and worship. Worship. You could go and worship in the same language in Africa. Think about that as they spread out. But they migrate east together, the text says, as one people to what would have been uh, Mesopotamia. We got the uh, map coming back up that we looked at last week where the three sons generally migrated. Ham down here in Africa, North Africa, Egypt. Shem over here, which you see Shinar right in the middle of the yellow there. That is kind of Mesopotamia area, which is where they migrated, these peoples. And then you've got um, Japheth up into kind of the European areas. They migrate. Babylon on the plains of Shinar, it says, where they went. This is just north of the area where Abraham will be born and come from, from this area. And the direction is they migrate eastern in Genesis. You know what it usually points to? A movement away from God. Eastern's not a good direction uh, in Genesis. It points to a movement away from God. Adam and Eve, they were sent out and the gate was guarded on what? The east. Do you remember that? So what we get here is a picture of humanity's attempt to migrate away from God, rebel, and move and separate and grasp power apart away from east from God, really, is what Moses is giving us here. And Nimrod, as we said, he was, his city was Babel, may have even been their leader out front leading the charge as they migrated east. Do you know what his name means? We shall rebel. And Babel is about in the same place that the Garden of Eden probably was. And so now we get to chapter 11. What's happened? We've come full circle in the book of Genesis. As humanity now migrates back to where the garden was, and what's going to happen? Both people groups are going to be expelled. Both of them are going to be kicked out, so to speak. So what happens when they get here? Look at chapter three, verse, or excuse me, verse three of uh, chapter eleven. And they said to one another as they got there on the plain, and they settled. There's that word "settle." They're not supposed to just settle. What are they supposed to do? Disperse. God said, and they settled there. Verse three, and they said to one another, "Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly." And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, "Come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower with its top." In the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
on the surface of it, you look at it and you go like, what's wrong with that? Like, what's so wrong with that? Is it wrong to build a great tower? Is it wrong to build a business? Is it wrong to excel at business or parenting or accumulating money even? No. That's not what we see here. Not in and of itself. And there can even be a, there can even be a, a, a healthy pride in achieving something for God's glory, if you were, we remember that, and achieving something and working hard, knowing God's put you on the earth to work and see it flourish. So it's not just the fact that they built a tower. Something else is going on here. Something else is going on here. Human pride. Absolute pride. A pride that is sinful. The question to ask them and to ask us is, why do we desire to achieve great things? Why do you desire to achieve great things is the question. Why do they desire to build? What's their heart motive? That's always the thing to ask us. What's the motive beneath the motive or beneath the action? Why? So what's their sin? I got a few things we're going to look at here because God's obviously not pleased with what takes place here. I mean, it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. They, they come right out and say it. They want to make a great name for themselves rather than God. That's what's going on here. I mean, they come right out and say it. Let's build a tower so we can make a great name for ourselves. This is their purpose. And it comes with a really an affront to God because as you think about the Word of God, they want to make a great name. But if you read the Bible, the only name that's really meant to be made great is whose? God. All over the Bible. The only name that actually has the right to be truly great is God. And as we know from Genesis in our series, why did he make humans? Why did he make us? Yeah. For his glory, to spread out, back even in Genesis, to fit, or in, in, in the garden, I mean even, spread out in the earth that he created, his cosmic temple, really is what it is, that he made, and we would image God, his name to the world, and make his name great as image bearers. That's why he made humanity. That's why he made us. And here what we have are people who are saying, no, 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 we're digging in. We're settling in. We're not spreading out, and we are going to make our name great. Let's do it. Let's build it. This is the heart of pride for every one of us, to take something that only should belong to God and make it our own. A great name that only belongs to him. That's pride, to take something that belongs to him and make it our own. You might hear that today and say, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I want to serve a God that's all about his own name. <laughs> that just sounds kind of like selfish or small-minded of God to make his name great. Is he really that like insecure? He's got to, you know, be about his name all the time. I mean, if you're struggling with that today or even, you know, watching streaming online, this kind of misses the fact. It kind of misses the fact that while we image God, uh, he is absolutely, radically different from us. It misses that fact. If you, if you struggle with that, ah, why would he make his name great? It absolutely misses the fact. How different. He's not just a better version of us. He's not even on the same plane as us. He's off the charts from us. And we struggle with that. 
He's great. He's holy. He's wise. He's good. And we are none of these things in and of ourselves. We're just not. And so for God to actually make himself known is gracious to the world. It's actually, actually beautiful to the world. And when that's happening, God's name being made great, that's actually when the world is right, <laughs> the way the world's supposed to actually be and go. It's the purpose of creation. It is the purpose, grand purpose of your life. There, there really is, and everything else should fall into that and be filtered through that to shout out his name, not always literally, but to live for his glory. I mean, Jesus knew that, didn't he? When he taught us to pray, what was the first thing? Remember our Lord's Prayer series <clears throat> some months back? He said, what was the first thing he said? Hallowed be thy name. Famous, renowned, great be your name, God. Jesus knew that himself as he taught us to pray that way. Now, I don't follow a lot of celebrity news. I don't, really. I don't. But I happened to come across a story this week that I could not, um, I couldn't resist using today. <clears throat> the media and fans and social media were obsessed this week just because Brad Pitt wore a name tag to an Oscar breakfast. You see the picture coming up there. Uh, I mean, article after article was flooding the internet this week on, oh, it's so cute. Brad Pitt wore a, a name tag to an Oscar uh, breakfast. Can you believe it? People were shocked. Brad Pitt wore a name tag? I mean, why, I, why were they shocked? I mean, is there, is there a bigger or one of the bigger names in movies of the last 25 years? I mean, there isn't. I mean, and he's at an Oscar party where he's nominated for an Oscar. I think everyone might know his name, right? Now, I'm not making a comment on Brad Pitt here, uh, here per se, but more on our culture's response. Oh, give me a name that precedes me before I ever even walk in a room. Let us make a name for ourselves. So that all people will know who I am. He had to put on a name tag? Glad you have yours on today, right? It's name tag Sunday. Look at that. That worked out well. <clears throat> so we may not have a name like Brad Pitt that follows us into a room that, why are you wearing a name tag? We all know you. But in what ways do you desire to just squeak out a little recognition for yourself? When you walk in a room metaphorically speaking? What's the motive in your heart for the great things you're attempting? Is it a great name for yourself in the way you live life, or is it a great name for God? Or maybe it's a little of both probably for most of us. Some mixed motives. So what motivated them? Because they are wanting to make a great name for themselves so that they don't need a name tag. I don't need a name tag. What motivated them? Here's what motivated them. Ambition motivated by fear. How do we know that? They tell us, again in their words, they say, let's make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. They wanted a permanence. They wanted a security. They wanted significance, an identity that would make them feel safe. I mean, this is such a big world. 
Let's, let's make a name for ourselves here. Let's make a safe place here, lest we be dispersed and harmed and really die and disappear off of the face of this great earth. Ultimately, what drove them was a fear of death. Death is something that can motivate us to do a lot of things, can't it? <laughs> Exercise, eat right, go to the doctor. Sometimes it keeps us actually from doing those things too. Ultimately, it was a fear of death. I mean, death is something we try and ignore. We make jokes about it to lighten it up. But the ultimate reason for so much of what we do, even in our ambition, is a, a grasping for like just some kind of permanence that we know will never come. And that's what's happening here in Babel. But the truth is that we think about it at times. And there are times that it even hits us hard with the reality, I will die. And then what will happen? What will happen? This week, the world mourned the death of Kobe Bryant. <clears throat> now, I want you to put aside for a moment your team loyalties, <laughs> not to miss the point here. And I know Kobe himself had a stained track record, I know that. But what was clear from the response is that, I don't know if you were following some of the news this week, or probably you had to see stories somewhere, it was all over everywhere. What's clear from the response is that when someone achieves great things, when someone transcends, you know, as an icon, or when someone has everything, as we look at it, our response is disbelief when they die. The greater the achievement, the more shocked we are when they die. And I saw one former NBA player say this week, he said, he was the last person you would expect something like this to happen to. Well, why would that be? When the Bible says that we're like a mist, our life, here today and gone tomorrow. I mean, there's all other kinds of comments this week about disbelief, just disbelief. With so much fame and wealth, accomplishments, success, surely someone like him would be shielded from death. That's what the heart of the Tower of Babel is. And it's a fear that can be in our hearts too. This fear and this desire for a permanence that we know will never come. I mean, there's some good stuff that came out of this, that this week. You saw all, all kinds of people were thinking about death when we push it off all the time and saying, wow, we don't know what time we have on this earth. If it could happen to him, wow, it could happen to anyone. But something deeper is going on as, as well in the Tower of Babel here, not just an ambition for fear of death. There was a crossing of God's boundaries as well. Let's talk about that for a minute before we transition. They've been going back and forth, or going back and back to this again, but they're crossing a boundary again that God has given to them. Like Adam and Eve, like the demons with the woman, like Ham with Noah. Do you see something here? In all their plans, what do you not hear mentioned? God. In all their plans, God is not mentioned. But what does James say? James says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow I want to build a big tower. It doesn't say that, but... We'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
They were living as if God didn't exist. He wasn't part of their grid. He wasn't part of their framework. He wasn't part of their plans. They made plans without any reference to God. And that's what actually brings the fear of death in life. If you live without reference to your maker, living without God, living life as if you're achieving on your own, living on your own, moving from one place to the next on your own, they had totally forgotten God. And his command, even, to fill the earth and, and, and to, to uh, fill it by spreading out. When we leave God out of our life and forget that we're part of his plan, that's where insignificance and the fear comes from. When you forget that you're part of a grand story and a grand action and a grand movement that God is doing in the world to redeem humanity, then fear does come in. When you realize that you actually realize you're part of the most significant story in the world, when you forget it, what happens? Fear of insecurity, fear of death, so ambition and pride come. i got to make a name for myself because you're detached from your maker. And that's why God had to do what he did. Let's take a look at it. God graciously, I would say, intervenes to stoop, mercifully confuse and scatter. Verse 5 here, I'll let you finish filling it in. Verse 5 is so important here. In fact, I heard one commentator call it this week the turning point of human history. Take a look at it with me, of chapter 11. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. This is the remedy to deal with the pride of what's taking place here, the rebellion against God, the living apart from God. God comes down. He graciously intervenes. And did you catch the humor there? Does God really need to come down to earth to see the tower? <laughs> no. He's omniscient and he sees all. What God is saying is here, oh, you poor creature. Do you really think by building something of your own power, you can reach heaven? You can reach God, you can reach me by something of your own ingenuity and building. I mean, it's so puny. I will come down to check it out. That's what's going on here. I sit on high. The Bible says he sits on high, work like grasshoppers on the earth. He comes in grace to intervene. And mercy and judgment as he confuses and scatters them. And at first look, it looks like God's frightened or that it's out of his control no, he actually does this for their own good. Their united pride would always keep them from seeing their need unless he did something about it. So he scatters them by confusing their language. So how has he done this for us today? Jesus stoops. Jesus stoops. Jesus comes down to save and scatters our own Babylonian towers. Let's talk about it for a minute. God comes down into our lives too, and he scatters our own Babylonian towers and dreams of pride and self-sufficiency. See, we too think God is more like us than not like us, and so we can make a name for ourselves. And so what does he do? He stirs up our life through times of loss 
Maybe it's a shattered dream. A career ends, health fails, financial insecurity comes, or relationship breaks down, and in confusion we ask, why did God let this happen? And it's right there in that moment that God is using mercy in judgment as a means to a gracious finding of him, which is what he's doing at Babel. That in humbling we might turn to him. Remember Peter said that we might grope and feel our way to him in that scattered out life in, that we live. God always must come down to deal with our pride. That's what Babel teaches us. And so Jesus, what does he do? He comes down. The one who truly did, didn't need a name tag. <laughs> he made this place. We should, when he came down, whoa, he's here. He doesn't need a name tag. He made us. He made it. He comes down to live the perfect life, to not make a name for himself, leaving heaven's glory and home for you. That's what this table's about today. That's what this table's about. And everything he ever did was for the Father. As he did it, uh, it was for the Father, not for, to make a name for himself, but for God. But we have to admit our own pride and turn to him. That's what the Bible teaches us. As he did at Babel, God always has to come down and deal with our pride. He gave up his good name, Jesus, so that through his death on the cross, we could be given finally the best name, the greatest name, to, to cease from having to make a name for yourself. He'd put his name on you, his stamp on you, his spirit on you. Freedom from needing to make a name. Freedom from needing to fear death. Why? And why is he doing it? To unite us as one family again. Do you know that even though God used confusion of languages and judgment, do you know he began to reverse the Babylonian judgment? Do you know when he did that? Pentecost. Do you remember that moment of history? The Spirit of God comes down on the disciples. This is after Jesus has gone to heaven. And they, Peter begins to preach to this table of nations in front of him, all these different groups of people. And what happens, you remember? They begin to hear the language and all understand it somehow. It's miraculous. The Spirit in that moment came down, right? God must come down. He came down and he's weaving back together what sin and Babel tore apart. In that moment, he's starting it. Maybe you feel like your life this morning is a confusion of God's judgment right now. Maybe you're full of fear and anxiety. This table shows us that for those who trust Christ, he will come down again and he will put things back together. Your body, your soul, your name, your life, our language, one family. So as we prepare to take the table, I remind you, this table is for those who could already call themselves part of that family, part of God's family. I encourage you, if it's, you're, not, if you're not sure today, let it pass by. I encourage you. Nobody's going to be judging you, looking down. It doesn't make much sense if you don't call yourself a child of God to eat the meal of God. So let it go by. But for the rest of us, let's take a moment or two while our servers prepare to get our hearts ready uh, for communion.